Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. In this segment of our History of Israel, we want to take a little bit of a step aside and not talk about Israel internally or talk about Israel's foreign policy. We want to talk about American Jews and how American Jews felt about Israel. We tend to have the following assumptions. America has always been Israel's most important ally. And we also have this assumption, oh, American Jews loved Israel, really loved it from the very beginning until the Palestinian conflict happened. And then once there was an occupation, then understandably, American Jews got very conflicted about Israel. And that leads us to where we are now. And what we're going to see very quickly is that neither of those assumptions are true. And let's start with the latter one, this idea that American Jews were from the very outset really in love with this idea of a Jewish state. They weren't. And they were, in fact, very conflicted about the idea of a Jewish state. And here's why. Here's what President Woodrow Wilson says in 1915, two years before the Balfour Declaration. He says to a group of newly naturalized Americans, you cannot dedicate yourself to America unless you become in every respect and in every purpose of your will, thorough Americans. You cannot become thorough Americans if you think of yourself in groups. America does not consist of groups. A man, because it's 1915, that's how he spoke back then. A man who thinks of himself as belonging to a particular national group in America has not yet become an American. And the man who goes among you to trade upon your nationality is no worthy son to live under the stars and stripes. Wilson says we're all in favor of immigration. We want you in. You can be Italian-Americans, Austrian-Americans, Spanish-Americans, Polish-Americans, Russian-Americans, but now you're Americans. And the minute your identity is hyphenated, you're not really American at all. That's 1915. But in 1917, the British issued the Balfour Declaration, His Majesty's government viewed with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. And European Zionists look at American Jews and say, okay, come on, join us. Look at all the progress we've made. American Jews are very uncomfortable. How do you make your way in America? And we know the Jews were hardly equal in America in 1915 or 1917. They had a long way to go. How do you make your way in America and at the same time say, I'm a Zionist. I also want to build an American homeland somewhere else. It's a very uncomfortable position for American Jews. And that's why Louis Brandeis, who's the first Jewish American to serve on the Supreme Court, writes about Zionism after he becomes one of the leaders of the Zionist movement. Here's what he says. And listen carefully to what he says and ask yourself if you understand what he's saying. We should all support the Zionist movement, although you or I do not think of settling in Palestine. Let no American imagine that Zionism is inconsistent with patriotism. For a man as a better citizen of the U.S., for being a loyal citizen of his state and of his city and being loyal to his family, 
And therefore, every American Jew who aids in advancing Jewish settlement in Palestine, though he feels neither he or his descendants will ever live there, will likely be a better man, again, how they spoke back then, and a better American for doing so. You can read that paragraph a hundred times, and you're not really going to understand what in the world Brandeis is talking about. At the end of the day, after all the flowery language, how does supporting a Jewish settlement in Palestine in 1917 make you a better American Jew? It doesn't. And how does it make you a better American? It really doesn't. But he's trying very hard to try to say that we can do both without in any way come at the expense of our Americanness. But it's not really that convincing to people. So in 1950, when Israel's already created and David Ben-Gurion is busy fighting not only with Menachem Begin, but he's also already fighting with American Jewish leaders about all sorts of things. Jacob Blaustein, who is the head of the American Jewish Committee back then, says in 1950 the following, American Jews, young and old alike, Zionists and not Zionists alike. In 1950, he had no problem saying that there were lots of American Jews who were not Zionists, are profoundly attached to this, their country. America welcomed our immigrant parents in their need. Under America's free institutions, they and their children have achieved that freedom and sense of security unknown for long centuries of travail. We have become truly Americans, just, have all, just as have all other oppressed groups that have ever come to these shores. Parenthetically, I doubt that African Americans would see it that way, but that's another conversation altogether. Back to him, we repudiate vigorously the suggestion that American Jews are in exile. The future of American Jewry of our children and our children's children is entirely linked with the future of America. We have no alternative and we want no alternative. It's his way of saying the future of our people is not Palestine and it's not Israel and it's not Zionism. It is right here. And then he says something really astonishing. He says, we had, we had cooperated in the approval of partition, that UN partition plan for a Jewish state and an Arab state, in the conviction that a Jewish state was the only practicable solution for some hundreds of thousands of the surviving Jews of Europe. What he's really saying there is, we weren't really keen on the idea of a Jewish state, but it was better to have the Jews go to a Jewish state from Europe than to have them come here. We didn't want those hundreds of thousands of poor survivors coming to America's shores. We were all already building a country very different. Let them go to Palestine. Let them go to Israel. That's a pretty amazing thing to say. And a decade later or so, Norman Podhoretz, who will become one of the leaders of the neoconservative movement in America, but he writes this as a very young man right after he'd graduated Columbia College. He says this, No doubt the Jewish people that had been in exile, but not this Jew, not me. My true homeland was America, and the Jewish homeland was, as far as I was concerned, a foreign country. I was very happy that it had been established as a sovereign state to which persecuted Jews in need of refuge could flee, as millions of them, at the cost of their lives, had been unable to do just a short while back. But I could not imagine any such thing ever happening to me or to the Jews of America in general. And if God forbid it ever did and I was forced to settle in Israel, then I would almost certainly feel that I was now in exile. And again, I want to remind you that these very conflicted feelings about Israel 
are long before there's a PLO, are long before there's a six-day war, there's no Palestinian issue, there's no occupation, there's none of that. So if that's the case, you can ask, how come I always had this sense that American Jews loved Israel so much? Because they did. Because the rank-and-file American Jews loved a lot about Israel, and I'll say very briefly what that was. First of all, they loved this image of the new Jew. You know, we see these posters from the Yeshuv in the early part of Israel of the man and the woman standing in the field, all bronzed and muscular. That was a very image of, different image of what the Jew was from the image of the Jew in the Holocaust, right? The Jew in the Holocaust or the Jew in Kishinev in the program in 1903. These are massacred Jews. These are murdered Jews. These are mutilated Jews. These are you know, emaciated Jews. The Jew of Israel was all of a sudden something very different. These were Jews who defended themselves. They were tan, and they were bronzed, and they were muscular. They were working in the field by day and defending themselves by night. American Jews loved this image of the new Jew. Zionists spoke openly about creating a new Jew as part of the purpose of Zionism, and it spoke as much to American Jews as it did to the Zionists themselves in lots of ways. There was another way, by the way, in which American Jews loved Israel, and that was because supporting Israel and loving Israel was a way of coming to terms with what they had not done during the Second World War. American Jews knew during the Second World War what was happening in Europe. People have written books about how the New York Times talked about and published and exposed what was happening. There's a book by Deborah Lipstadt called Beyond Belief, there is another book called Buried in the Times. The Times actually didn't put it on the front page, but people read the entire Times and people knew what was happening in Europe. And what did American Jews do? Actually, nothing. There were no protests in Washington. There was one. There was a protest of rabbis in 1943. About 400 rabbis, most of them Orthodox, went to protest outside the White House and FDR refused to meet with them, actually and snuck out a back door when he was going somewhere. But, you know, in America in 1943, there's airplanes, and there's highways, and there is radio. And American Jews could have come to Washington by the millions. There was 4.5 million Jews in America, but nobody marched, and nobody protested, and nobody insists that the United States bomb the tracks to Auschwitz or Birkenau to try to stop the Germans from carting Jews off there and exterminating them. For very, very complicated reasons, largely because they didn't want to seem disloyal to the larger American cause of defending Western democracy, American Jews were pretty silent about what was happening to Jews in Europe. And after the war was over and the pictures began to come out even more, they were horrified not only with what happened in Europe, they were horrified with themselves. And therefore, supporting Israel and loving Israel was kind of a way of expiating uh, that sin. And if you kind of think about, you know, the ways which Israeli dancing takes over Jewish camps, day camps and summer camps and all of that in America back then. It's because they kind of embraced this sense of this new Jew because it was very different from the Holocaust and embracing that allowed them not to think too much about what they had not done during those pivotal years. And finally, what's happening in Israel is in a certain way, and Jonathan Sarna of Brandeis University is the one who really points this out, I think, most compellingly, What's happening in Israel is a kind of an antidote to what's happening to American Jews and their discomfort with it. American Jews are doing very well economically, and they're moving to the suburbs. They're becoming good old-fashioned capitalists, and on one hand, they're very happy about that, but they're 
uncomfortable with that at the same time because there's poverty in America. And why are we moving to the suburbs and other peoples aren't able to move to the suburbs? But what is there in Israel? There's the kibbutz. It's socialist. It's equal. It's egalitarian. And obviously, the reality was much more complicated than that. But in that romanticization of the kibbutz, American Jews kind of fall in love with a part of themselves that they had to give up in order to become the Americans in suburbia that they had wanted to become. And it's during that period in the 50s and then in the 60s when American Jews are also becoming a lot less traditional and they're becoming a lot less religious, a lot less attached to the, to the ways of their people. And they look at Israel and what do they see? Hebrews being born. It's, it's the language of, of, of regular everyday discussion. And there's Hebrew books being published. And there's an explosion of Jewish literacy and culture and content. And that, they said, we haven't been able to pull that off here. But it's amazing that it happens there. And they really did genuinely love it. There was nothing duplicitous about it at all. So in a lot of ways, American Jews are very uncomfortable with this idea of Zionism, because they don't want to be pulled in that direction and have people say about them, which people still do say, of course, that their loyalty to Israel somehow calls into question their loyalty to America. Uh, but they still are very much in love with certain elements of Israel, the kibbutz, the socialism, and so on and so forth. But to say again that Israeli Jews and American Jews had this love affair until 1967 and the beginning of the occupation, that's completely false. And the other thing, of course, that we said was false is this idea that America has always been Israel's greatest ally. We'll do it super quick. Israel's main military ally in the War of Independence is not the United States. Israel wins the War of Independence with Czechoslovakian arms, arms that the Czechoslovakians sell to Israel, some of which, by the way, was captured from the Germans at the end of the Second World War. And it's harrowing that some Israeli soldiers in the War of Independence are fighting with rifles that have swastikas on them because it's arms that the Germans had forfeited at the end of the war that the Czechoslovakians had then acquired. And why did they sell those arms to Israel? Because Stalin told them to. Israel's greatest ally in the War of Independence between 47 and 49 is the USSR, is communist Russia, is Joseph Stalin. It's pretty hard to imagine, but that's the case. Now, eventually Stalin figures out that Israel's not going to become that socialist country in his orbit that he wanted. And the French then become Israel's major military suppliers. And they are what keep Israel going for a good part of the 1950s and the early part of the 1960s. In the middle of the 1960s, though, for reasons that are too complicated to, complicated to go into now, France imposes an arms embargo on Israel, actually refuses to even deliver all the arms to Israel that Israel's purchased and paid for from France, so that Israel, in a very daring operation, actually in 1969, steals five of the boats that it had already paid for from a, uh, a port in France and sails the boats to Israel. It was kind of an amazing story back in the day. France's Israel relationship with Israel pretty much comes to a brutal end at that point and is never completely recovered. And it's in the Johnson administration, not even under the Kennedy administration, but it's under the Johnson administration when American foreign policy and Israel really warm up to each other. One last thing about America and Israel's foreign policy. I think all of us now understand 
that the Israeli government, especially a Likud government, sees American Jews and their political positions in general, and their what they what seems to Israelis like relentless criticism of Israel over an occupation that it has no idea how to possibly end without endangering itself. It feels to American Jews that Israel is not listening to its moral conscience, uh, and it feels to Israeli political leadership that American Jews are very naive about the political and military complications that it faces. And here's what Bibi Netanyahu literally says out loud to people who are in his orbit. He says, look, I'm never going to be able to make these American Jews happy. 70% of American Jews vote with the Democratic Party. We can see where the Democratic Party is moving. We can certainly see where the younger generation of the Democratic Party is moving when it comes to Jews especially. I mean, really, why would I waste my time, says Bibi Netanyahu, not me. Why would I waste my trying time to win the, the love and the loyalty of these American Jews when it's really impossible? And then he goes on and says, you know, there's about 5 million American Jews. You know how many evangelicals there are in America? Between 90 million and 100 million. And they instinctively love Israel, says Bibi Netanyahu. Who do I need for votes in Congress? 5 million American Jews or 100 million evangelicals? And Bibi has basically said, because of what feels to him and his compatriots, like relentless criticism of Israel, forget it. It's really not worth trying. I'm going to let American Jews go their way, and we Israelis are going to do our thing, and our support in Congress is going to be just fine, not because of American Jews, but because of the evangelicals. And I think in 2020, this is a moment for both sides to draw way back from the precipice. Those parts of the American Jewish community that are super critical of Israel, that talk about walking away from Israel, I'm done, it's a racist country, it's an occupying country, it's a country that was born in sin, don't say that about America when it comes to African Americans. Don't say that about America when it comes to Native Americans. Don't say that about America when it comes to shutting off immigration in 1921 and 24. They don't wash their hands of love or loyalty for America. They say, as I've said before, they want to make it better. That should be their attitude to Israel also. Not this, if you can't live the way I would want you to live, I'm done. But Israel also has to pull back from that very precipice. Because Israel needs American Jews for something much more important than political or congressional support. Israel needs American Jews because Israel's not meant to be the country of its citizens. Israel's meant to be the country that on some level represents the entire Jewish people. Now, citizens will have more of a role, to be sure. But all Jews all over the world have some stake in Israel. And even Israel acknowledges that through the law of return. We have to find a way of building an international community of Jews that knows how to disagree politically without disparaging one the other and understanding that at the end of the day what the Zionists always said was true. The fate of Jews all around the world is very often tied up one with the other. Israelis need to care about Jews in the diaspora. Jews in the diaspora need to care about Israel, not only because we need to protect each other, but because we have a great deal to learn from each other. And what that's something to learn from each other is, we'll talk about in the segments that come. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.